Let me start with a, just a brief prayer that I learned from a, a pastor who's taught me a lot. Um, Heavenly Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us for your son's sake. Amen. Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. 2 Timothy 2, 8. We've been making our way through the uh, second epistle to Timothy, uh, written, I mean, second one we know of, written by Paul, really on the eve of his own death. He was uh, imprisoned, presumably, in Rome. We don't know for sure. He was awaiting his execution. And this is the last letter that Paul will write uh, in the scriptures, at least the canon of scriptures. This is the last one recorded. With the central theme being, and if you've been with us any of the last few weeks, you know this, being an exhortation to Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ Jesus or of the gospel, but rather to share in suffering, to embrace the the inevitable suffering that comes from being a bold witness of Christ in this world. So one thing to say at the start, what we've said every week is that this is not just <clears throat> for pastors or preachers or evangelists. This is for every one of us. This letter is written for our sakes. Last week, Paul told Timothy that uh, he needs to be, and he told us, that we need to be strengthened by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. This is the beginning of chapter two. And he provided there three striking pictures of what that strength looks like in the life of a Christian. You guys remember what they were? Soldier, athlete, farmer, so people are listening. Praise God. Um, I'm glad to hear that. That makes me very happy. Well, we ended with two words, remember Jesus. What we said about those two words at the beginning of verse 8 was that Jesus perfectly embodies the reality that Paul is holding out to Timothy in those pictures. And what's more is that in his death on the cross, he purchased or secured those realities, those pictures as experiences we can participate in in the Christian life. We can walk in those realities by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And that strength that we get from Jesus isn't mediated through a magic wand or through some weird uh, experience, meditation experience. It happens. It is mediated to us and granted to us through this book, the Word of God, Scripture. That's how we experience the strength that is in Christ Jesus, the grace that strengthens us through the word of God. And through that strength, we can, Paul would tell us, endure any suffering in our lives. And so Paul now, in the text we're about to look in, is going to draw all these seemingly distinct threads into one sort of rope, and that rope is going to point us to the source of the strength, the source of the grace, the source of our ability to endure suffering. And that source is none other than Jesus Christ. And what he's going to tell us is, as well is that not only is he going to point us to the source, but he's going to show us why it matters eternally. Why not being ashamed is not something that is arbitrary 
or to be looked at lightly. So let's read this. Verse 8, we're going to read through verse 13. Chapter 2, 2 Timothy. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In many ways, what we just looked at there is really the heart of 2 Timothy. It's the heart, it's the beating heart of this book because it provides for Timothy and it provides for all of us the motivation, the essential motivation behind obedience to the command of Paul back in verse eight of chapter one, which was the command that has really been the, the center of all that Paul said here, do not be ashamed. Now, Paul did not give that command willy-nilly. That wasn't an arbitrary thing. That wasn't just something he said to Timothy because it felt right on that day. I'm just gonna tell you not to be ashamed today because it feels like a good idea. There's a reason for him giving that command. And it's not a small reason. It's not a trivial reason. It's not even a momentary passing reason. It is something that matters, really matters for all eternity. Paul begins here in verse eight with remember Jesus Christ, where we left off last week. He wants Timothy to have in his mind Christ Jesus as he considers the gravity of what he's just invited his beloved child, Timothy, into, what he's admonishing him to do. He says, here, never be ashamed of Christ. Be ready to endure all manner of suffering. And I want you to do that by remembering Jesus. Remember Christ. What he's doing here is he's putting steel into the spinal column of Timothy, into his resolve, his, his vigilance, his ability to walk the Christian life. And he's doing that through the person, Christ Jesus. Do you want to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus? That's what Paul's saying. Do you want that? Do you want that strength to flow to you, Timothy? If you do, you need to do one thing first. Remember Jesus. And then he tells us what that means. Look at verse eight here with me again. <clears throat> Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So this is how Paul revisits Jesus in this letter. Uh, it's brief here, but that's only because he said a lot about Jesus already. If you remember back in verse nine of chapter one, I'm gonna read verse nine and 10. This is, this is Paul's comprehensive unpacking of the gospel. It's not fully comprehensive, but it's enough to get us to understand what it is. He says in verse nine, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, Timothy, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
My kids learned this verse this week. They're not here so I can pick on them. I think they're helping Rachel in the back. They learned this whole section. It was really great to hear them recite it over and over and over and over again. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. God's salvation through the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ Jesus. And Paul brought this up right at the beginning. And he he told Timothy after this, remember what he told Timothy? He said, listen, I know whom I believe. I know him. Paul was completely convinced that Christ was who he claimed to be. Wasn't confused about that. He was certain about Jesus. And we, we even said the first week or the second week, we said that to Paul, Jesus was everything. He was everything to him. And so he tells Timothy right here in verse eight of chapter two, remember Jesus Christ. Remember that he was risen from the dead and remember that he is the offspring of David. Why those two things? Out of all that Paul could say about Jesus, why does he touch these two concepts, Christ's resurrection and the fact that by the flesh, he was the offspring of David? Well, we're gonna drill down into both of them and and show how really they're connected together. But before we do that, I I thought it was really fascinating and helpful to notice that Paul, this isn't the only time that Paul brings up these two ideas, these two realities about Christ um, in the scriptures. In Romans 1, at the very beginning of that book, he actually engages both these things in different order, but he does it. And what he says about it adds some clarity to the weight and the importance of what Paul's saying here. So look at this, Romans 1 verse 1. Paul tells the Roman church, he says, "I, I was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Now listen to this. Who was descended according or descended from the flesh, according, or descended from David according to the flesh. That's one. Descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's two. Both of these realities are present here in the beginning of Romans. And they're, they're not trivial. They're ontological in nature. They, 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 they depict the reality of who Christ is and where he came from. They deal with who he really is. Being an offspring of David according to the flesh and being the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Both of these tell us who Christ is and where he came from. And they establish really a foundational understanding of what it, was, what it meant for the God-man, Christ Jesus, to have actually died and risen from the dead. One of these, the first one, the Davidic claim, is a Messianic claim to the, son, the, the title, the son of David, according to the flesh, which if you've read any of the Psalms or read through large sections of the Psalms, you've stumbled on one of these. But the, the place where it actually came into existence in the scriptures most clearly that David would have a son, an offspring, is 2 Samuel 7. Let me read to you God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. He tells David, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, that means die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him, God says, a father and he shall be to me a son. This is Jesus Christ. 
Paul is saying Jesus fulfills this by saying that he's the offspring of David. He's saying all the promises of the Messiah, all the promises of the savior of Israel throughout the scriptures are fulfilled in this man, Christ Jesus. This is, the in, in, this is intrinsic to the message that Paul preaches, the gospel. This isn't extra, this is essential. It's almost as though he's taking up in his arms all the hopes of Israel for this Messiah, this savior. And he's saying, listen, you need to know that man, Christ Jesus, fulfills them all perfectly. He is the one that we've been waiting for. He's the one, but he's more than that. He's not simply an earthbound king that's gonna live for 80 or 90 years and then he's gonna die. We're gonna put him into the grave and that's gonna be the end of his throne. That's not what he's saying here. He promised that it would last forever. His throne would never end. So how do you do that with a human being? Well, this is why Romans says what it says. Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he didn't just break the, the power of death over us, which he did. He validated his claim to be the son of God for him to stop being dead and to rise from the grave is evidence, not only that he's divine, but that he also never sinned. He never sinned, which is why Paul says that he was raised by the spirit of holiness. It was a vindication that he had actually lived a perfect life. He, the, the, the resurrection was a, a, a sort of proving out that he had had a holy life, had never sinned, and therefore death had no claim on him. So there's a lot more in the resurrection going on than simply him saying, I'm not dead anymore. There's a whole massive reality that comes into existence here. And and one of the main ones here is that he proved that he was perfectly holy. And by doing that, his sacrifice on the cross paid for our sins. Romans 4 says that Christ was raised for our justification. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, you need to know this. This is why the resurrection is so important. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. We went over it Easter of this year a few times. But if Christ had not been raised from the dead, nothing he had done or said would matter, including the cross. But praise be to God, he was raised from the dead. And therefore, this is an essential reality in the gospel. And Paul's telling Timothy here, He's like saying, he's laying hold of these two huge realities, his resurrection from the dead and him being an offspring of David. And he's saying, this is who Jesus is according to the flesh and according to his divinity. And Paul is basically saying to Timothy, listen, when I use the word gospel to you, I'm talking about this Christ. This is the one I'm talking about. The God man who, who lived a perfect life, who died the death we all deserve but was raised by the power of the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. These aren't random ideas or facts. These are essential to the gospel. And get this, this is the thing that's huge about them is they all impinge on mankind and demand acknowledgement. That this happened isn't just an isolated event in history. 
it demands recognition and either obedience or defiance. And I'm going to show you how. Acts 17, 30, when Paul is in Athens, he's talking to the, uh, the Athenian, really the, the, the most brilliant people in their culture who have been gathering at the Areopagus. And he's speaking to these Gentile unbelievers, <laughs> most of whom don't even know any of the, the, the Christology about David. He's speaking to them about why they need to trust in Jesus. Listen to what he says here. He looks these men in the face and he says, the, time, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Did you follow that? All people everywhere. No human being is outside that circle. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, this judgment, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection, again, is not even just just a, a fact connected to the gospel. It is an assurance that has been given to every human being on the planet. And it calls us all to see that God is no, no longer going to overlook ignorance and rebellion from mankind, but he is in and through his son commanding all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their rebellion and to receive the grace he offers, to receive him, to trust him, to love him, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge every human being who has ever lived, no exceptions, and he will do it in righteousness through the only perfect human being who can fulfill that role, the risen Christ. That man is not unknown. Look at a calendar. History is divided by this man. When Christ returns in great glory and power, I mean, we might have all different views about who Christ is, the world generally speaking, but when Christ returns in the glory of his father and the holy angels, let me tell you right now, no one's going to say, I wonder who that is. No one's going to say that. They'll be saying lots of things in terror, but they won't be saying that. They will know in that moment whether they've, whether they've ever heard the name of Jesus or not. In the depths of their souls, they will know that the God that they have suppressed with their minds and their hearts their entire lives was real and that the end has come through his son. They'll know that which is why Paul says in 2 Timothy here that he's suffering for the gospel. I mean, it makes sense that he's suffering if he's saying these kinds of things to these people. He's bound in chains, he says, as a criminal, telling people that there's this coming judgment for their sin. And when you tell people that, anybody who's ever said this to somebody knows, you don't get positive responses generally. You're not really gonna get, thank you for that, uh, you know, acceptance and reception from them. The natural response of the human heart to the idea that we have sinned and that we're guilty before God is anger and hostility, which is why Paul is in chains right now as a criminal. This is why he, in declaring the truth about God and the Son, is put in prison and locked up so that he can't say this anymore to anybody else. But guess what? What does Paul say next? 
just because I'm in chains doesn't mean God's word's in chains. God's word is not in chains. In fact, the word of God, he says, is not bound. It cannot be bound. Try it if you like. You will not be able to bind that word. I mean, think about that. The very fact that he wrote this letter is evidence that the word of God is not bound. He's in prison. He's got chains on his hands. I'm getting this out there to Timothy. The word of God is not bound. Which is really what Paul's been trying to communicate to Timothy at the very, since the very beginning of this letter saying that God's purposes in this world are not thwarted or stopped by human intervention or even by the suffering of his own messengers. They cannot stop this message. In fact, if you look out across church history and you look in the pages of the New Testament and even the Old Testament, you'll see that, <clears throat> that it is in the suffering of God's servants, in the suffering of the messengers delivering the gospel, that the value and glory of this message and its Christ can be truly seen for what it is. Paul, as he approaches his own beheading, says, I know whom I believed. I know him. I know Jesus, Timothy. And for me, that is enough. So even in his dying breath, even as the embers of his life are about to go out, he says, the word of God knows no bounds. You think they're going to take out the word of God when they take me out? They will not. Paul knew this fact. In fact, he, he knew this. I mean, think about it. He knew this fact about Christianity even before he was a Christian. Remember in Acts 8, when before his conversion, he begins to persecute the church in Jerusalem. He goes to town. He's dragging people to prison. He's destroying these little small communities of believers. After the stoning of Stephen, after they killed the one guy who was proclaiming very loudly in the streets about this, <coughs> what happens? The gospel breaks out of Jerusalem, goes to Judea, Samaria, Ethiopia, remote places like Damascus, which Paul's gonna have to figure out how to fix. Paul knew objectively, even as an unbeliever, what others would claim later in church history, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You stamp out one, Five others are growing in its place. It's like a blackberry plant. <laughs> you try to get rid of it and you've only exacerbated it. That's what happens here. And Paul right now in prison is tasting this power firsthand. He's like, it's real. This is real. I saw it from outside. Now I'm feeling it from within. The word of God is not bound, especially when his servants seem to be. That's when it's least bound. So Paul says in verse 10 here, because of that, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This word therefore here means that the power of the gospel to not be limited to or chained to the boundaries that we would think it would be imprisoned in a chain. The power of the gospel is his motivation and the reason he will endure anything. In fact, he'll endure everything, including humiliation, including pain, including sorrow, and even his own death. He knows that nothing which happens to him is going to prevent the spread of God's word, nothing. But in fact, all of it will serve to advance the kingdom. As much as the enemy pushes against him, the more fruitful his work will be. We have a large portion of the New Testament that proves this. 
words written while he was in prison that we're still learning from today. It's a wild paradigm to have, but it fueled in him this unwavering endurance. And he does this, he says, he, he, he endures everything <clears throat> for the sake of the elect. In Greek, it's eklektos. It means the chosen ones, those who are chosen from a larger group. And he's talking, of course, and we've looked at this many times before, he's talking about those whom God from all eternity chose in humanity to belong to himself. What he meant earlier when he said, we've been saved and called to a holy calling by God's purpose and grace. When? After we've made our lives look better? When? When we were born? No, from before the ages began, before there was space time, God, God's redeeming hand was coming up underneath us before we even existed. That's the elect. And, and, and we, we see this throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, here in 2 Timothy, it's all over the New Testament. What's intriguing here isn't that Paul uses the word elect. What's fascinating here is that he doesn't just use church or even believers. Like we would see here church and believers and be like, okay, you're talking about Christians. <clears throat> but he goes deeper. He uses a specific word, the elect, because he knows that the elect are the ones who are going to hear the gospel and repent and, and, and turn to God in faith. God will not leave these in the futility of their rebellion, but he will subdue their hearts by his word and he will unite them to his son so that they can experience the salvation that Paul has here with eternal glory. Now, every time I mention the doctrine of election, I wanna be very clear. This does not negate the responsibility of every man and woman in the world to receive the gospel does not negate that, nor does it absolve sinners of their rebellion against God and their sin against them if he chooses in his wisdom to permit them to continue in defiance. He is not guilty. He owes us nothing. What the doctrine of election does for the Christian is that it tells us we didn't save ourselves. We didn't do it. It means that our response to God wasn't the result of us being smarter than our neighbors or wiser or more spiritually inclined had had nothing to do with us. Salvation to us does not arise from us. Salvation is of the Lord, period. No caveats. We are saved because of him. And Paul's saying, so listen, when I say the people I'm enduring for, everything for, I'm not talking about merely people who profess Christianity. There are many people who profess that. I'm not talking about all of them. I'm not even talking about merely people who are part of a local church. Lots of people go to church. That's not ultimate. I'm talking about God's elect. I'm talking about the chosen ones. I'm talking about these that he has called to himself. Those are the ones my work serves ultimately. And then from that position of, of just communicating to Timothy, this is why I pour my life out for the elect. I endure everything for them that they might obtain the salvation that is in Christ. Then from that, he, he set loose, it seems, to recite a creedal statement of some kind. We don't know what it is. It's some sort of liturgical confession. Might even be an early first century hymn. And he says it in verse 11. Look at this. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, what he's about to say. For <clears throat> if we have died with him, that is Christ, 
we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And then he adds a few words at the end explaining what that means, for he cannot deny himself. He's talking about Christ. This is all about Christ. So this is probably a saying, whatever, wherever it comes from, that Timothy knows by heart. So when it comes up in the letter, he's not like, I'm confused by why, why you're mentioning this song, Paul. He knows it. And Paul's saying, listen, this is a trustworthy lyric. This is a trustworthy statement. This is confession, you can believe in it. You can go to town with it. You can bank on it, Timothy. If we have died with him, with Christ, we will live with him. We all know this. I mean, especially recently with baptisms, this is the center of our faith. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I've died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If we have died with Christ, the sinful person that we were prior to Jesus, prior to encountering him is dead. That person, he or she was nailed to Christ in the tree and in the mind of God, we were dead in that moment. All that we were before, we turned to God so that we might live with Christ. This is why we baptize. This is why we say we were buried with him and now we're raised with him. It is really the foundation of the Christian life. And uh, <clears throat> what it tells us is that God has raised us spiritually. We've looked at this several times over the last few months, but also that one day what is true spiritually of us will be true physically of us and we will be raised physically to be with Christ for all eternity. That is our destiny in Christ. But the creedal statement that Paul quotes here doesn't stop with that, that line. It continues. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Talking about Christ. So it moves from this single kind of event in our lives to a radical pattern of living that is defined by endurance. It is only those who endure who will reign with Christ. So Christian endurance, like whatever your idea of Christian endurance is, it's not tacked onto the side as like the French fries of the meal. It's at the center of our salvation, but it's not us earning anything, obviously. It is God demonstrating through us the salvation that he has wrought in our lives. So it is essential. Hebrews 10.36 is going to give this command. The ladies were in Hebrews before they were in Revelation. I've got two passages right here, Hebrews and Revelations. Hebrews 10.36, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need. You don't have possibility of endurance or if you'd like it to endure, you can. Otherwise, you know, don't worry about it. You have need in order to receive what is promised at the end. It requires endurance. Jesus says in, in Revelation, in every letter really to the, <clears throat> to the seven churches, he brings up at the end of it, something like an exhortation, a command, a weighty command. And this is similar, Revelation 3, the one who conquers, this is Jesus. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is saying, 
You have need of endurance. That's how you conquer. You endure in this life so that you might reign with me in eternity. And the reason why this is so important, Christian endurance, is because of the next line in this confession, this, this hymn. He says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. <laughs> we looked at that last week uh, in a passage in Luke. Um, this is why endurance is needed. Because if we deny him, if our lives or if our words or if our actions reject the reality of Christ, he will deny us. He's promising us that here. There's no question about it. There's no ambiguity about it. This is hard to hear. I think for a lot of us, for, for me, because I know intimately the faltering nature of my own bold witness. It's not bold a lot of times. A lot of times it's very flimsy. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I don't feel the desire to do the things that I ought to do. We know we can look into our hearts and see, man, we don't measure up to this very often at all. But the command is here to get up underneath us and to say, no, this is you. This is you. Walk in it. Jesus uh, in Matthew 10 says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Praise God. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. It's the same thing. Now, have you ever read that or read any of these? I mean, this is not the only one. He's, he says this many times in different ways. Have you ever read those and, and, and wondered, why is it so important that we acknowledge Christ in our lives? Like what's, what's underneath that, the, the, the command? Obviously he commanded it, so we should obey it, but why? And I think it's because acknowledging Christ in our lives in this world to everyone is evidence that my confidence is in him alone. That I, my confidence is in the one whom God has held out for the forgiveness of my sins. I put my confidence nowhere else but him. To acknowledge him verbally or even non-verbally is to say with your life, I've embraced him for who he claims to be. And I've taken my soul's eternity and I put it in his hands and said, it's yours. It's yours. Or in the words of the apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed. It's important to look at it that way that it's a life living in acknowledgement of Christ because denial of Christ isn't just responding to somebody and saying, you know, they ask you, do you know Jesus saying, no, I don't know him. That is denial. Peter did that, but that's not it in, it, in, its, in its comprehensive state. Denial of Christ is to live or to speak in a way that rejects his lordship, that denies his saving work in your life. And so Paul is pleading with Timothy there. He's saying, listen, never deny Christ in your heart, not in your actions, not in your words, but live a life that always acknowledges him because he is simply, Timothy, a treasure you cannot part with. Nothing is worth giving up over him. Then we come to this final line. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Christ, Paul says, is faithful. Jesus is faithful. But before we immediately grab that and put it in our account to bank on it, I know we hear the word faithful and we're like, that's great. 
That's for me. Notice here that Christ's faithfulness isn't being expressed specifically toward those who are faithless. That's not what Paul says here. When we know from the line above that if we deny Christ, he will deny us. So what is Christ's faithfulness directed towards here? What is he faithful to do? Well, Paul says here, he adds the line at the end, this is why Christ is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. His faithfulness is linked to his own nature, his own being. Christ cannot deny himself. And right here, we are looking at what really is the bedrock and the foundation of all reality. Think about this. Think about the implications. God's faithfulness to himself. His faithfulness to his own being. He won't deny himself. He won't deny his glory, his own nature. This is the reason for everything that God has ever done. There is not a single thing that God has ever done that is contrary to this reality, that he is faithful to his own glory, faithful to his own name in all the ways that we are not. Now, the question we we would ask when we get to this and the question most scholars ask is, well, what does this mean for us? Some scholars look at this and say, well, God's faithfulness here is that he will deny us. It's, It's repeating and echoing the line above that because he's faithful to his holiness and his justice and his righteousness. So if we're faithless, he will, he will maintain his righteousness by denying us, by rejecting us. And in a lot of ways, that's accurate here. Other scholars will look at this and say, well, actually, he's talking about the promises he's made to the elect that he will, when we're struggling in our faith, when we falter in our faith, he will get up underneath us and restore us. His faithfulness will come to us and restore us. Those are two predominant views. And if you look at the commentaries, you're going to see both those views. And it's very divided uh, where theologians land here. The thing that surprises me is that Paul doesn't actually go down either of those roads, nor does he imply that we should go down those roads. And I don't think either of those two realities, God rejecting us in our faithlessness or embracing us when we're faltering in faith, are mutually exclusive. The faithfulness of God to his own nature entails both those realities. Think about this. Uh, and we, we, we actually can see this, and I'm just going to bring you to the te- text right here. Look down in to verse 19 of 2 Timothy 2. Just a few verses below this. We're going to look at this, God willing, next week. But both of these realities that scholars bring up about this are true, and they, they don't need to be, you know, one rejected and the other one embraced. They can both be embraced. Here in verse 19, after Paul telling Timothy, listen, the faith of of some people in your church, Timothy, is being upset and unsettled by these false teachers, which we're going to look at next week. Paul says something amazing. He says, but Timothy, look at this. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Seal says two things. Number one, the Lord knows those who are his. And number two, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So this right here in verse 19 is a glimpse at the faithfulness of God that Paul's talking about in verse 13. This is a refusal to deny the reality of who he is. And Paul says, God's faithfulness to himself is like looking at a massive immovable foundation that is not gonna move anywhere. And it has a seal on it. And that seal 
says two things, two aspects of God's faithfulness in his relationship with his own people. First, he knows them. And second, they know him and they live like it. They show it in their lives. And we're gonna look, like I said, deeper at this, God willing, next week. But I wanna just grab those implications and pull it up to verse 13, where Paul says, if we are faithless, Christ will remain faithful. Why is that? Because he cannot deny himself. He won't deny himself. He won't deny who he is, which means for those who are truly his, for those who really do trust him and believe in him, they will hear all the words Paul's saying here in this trustworthy saying, and they will receive it and both promises and warnings they will embrace and they will heed them for their joy. To those who belong to God, they will look at the treasure that is Christ and they will say, he's worth all of this. He is worth all of this. For if we die with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him in eternal glory. That's the response of the Christian, of the elect, to Paul's verses here. But for those who are not Christ, those who, whether out of rejecting him outright or simply look at this book and say, it's not that big of a deal. The gospel is not that big of a deal. Don't need it. Regardless of what they say with their mouths or what church they belong to or whatever, wherever they might come from, they will read the text that Paul's saying here and they will read it and reject it. They will not live it. They will not act it. They will not embrace it. They will, maybe they'll say they are. Maybe they'll want to in some shallow way, but they will not follow through with it because they do not belong to him. They, there will be no restoration of faith. Their faithlessness will continue into eternity because at the center of their heart wasn't anything that was sincere or true about Jesus. It was what James 2 says is dead faith. And Paul's saying here, in that case, Christ's faithfulness is not mercy. In that case, Christ's faithfulness is justice. So the answer, I think, is not one or the other. Paul doesn't go there. The answer is Christ always remains faithful to himself. And if you've been joined to Christ, if you trust him, like right now, if your faith is in him, the promise here is that he will bring you all the way home. No matter how difficult the sorrow is in this life, no matter how hard the suffering is in this world, he will do it and you will endure because you belong to him. You're his. He's bought you. But if in hearing Paul's words here, we remain faithless and we disregard his word, it only evidences that we don't belong in him. Our faithlessness proves that he was never our Lord to begin with because as verse 19 says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's a seal on foundation. It's not something we came up with. It's not an optional thing. It is part of God's faithfulness that he removes the iniquity of his people. They depart from it because they belong to him. The reason why Paul, I think, is revolving around this issue here of uh, the faithfulness of God is because it drives home the intrinsic power of God's word. Hebrews 4 uh, says uh, of God's word, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts 
and intentions of the heart. He says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all, every creature on the planet are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give, a, give an account. In other words, um, to truncate this, there's no greater power in the universe than the word of God. It cuts the deepest, it goes the furthest, and it matters for eternal, eternity. There's nothing greater in the universe. I don't care if you think about exploding stars, nuclear weapons, they are all infinitesimal compared to the power of the word of God. The power of the word of God is such that it has the power to save eternally and the power to damn eternally. Charles Spurgeon would say, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some people to repentance hardens other people in their sins. This is the power. This is the nature of the word of God, which is why Paul is grabbing Timothy in this letter and saying, let me rehearse to you again the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to remember Jesus. He knows Timothy trusts Jesus. We said at the beginning, there's a sincere faith in Timothy. Paul recognizes it. But Paul also knows that nobody responds to the gospel neutrally. Nobody, the gospel does not leave anybody in a neutral position, no matter what you think about it. If your response to the words of this book or if anyone's response to the words of this book is just like, eh. You hear the words of scripture and your response is boredom. Or can we get to something that I really want to do? That's not neutrality. That's ignorance. That's blindness to a glory that is really there. And it is eternally deadly. I say, I, I said that I use that word before and I want to be, just be very clear. That is not me trying to be hyperbolic. Eternally deadly is not an overstatement. The consequences of rejecting God's grace in the gospel are not finite. They last forever. It's not a matter, I mean, just imagine this, conceive of it if you can. <laughs> it's not a matter of 70 years. It's not a matter of 700 years. It's not even a matter of 7 trillion years. Because when that's done, this will keep going on into endless ages. The consequences of rejecting the glories in this book and in the gospel last forever. So when the glory of God in his word comes to a person, their response is never, never neutral. They will embrace it for what it is or they'll reject it either by apathy, boredom. That's, those are the most common in America or just outright hostility. So the gospel, the word of God acts like a sword, like Hebrews 4 tells us, a sword that divides humanity into two groups of people. Those who see its glory and those who don't. And so Paul's petition is plead to Timothy, chains on his hands and with a crystal clear view of his death in the very near future, he says, Timothy, my beloved child, remember Jesus. Remember him. Remember what he's done for you on the cross. Let the gospel penetrate the deepest recesses of your heart. This Davidic king that we worship who, who conquered death 
remember him and allow the knowledge of who he is, the reality of who he is, dominate every action and every word in your life. Paul knows that it is in remembering Christ that his words and the words of scripture sink to the depths of our souls and they act like an anchor which can secure us in the middle of any storm you go through and allow us to endure any kind of suffering for the sake of his name. So what I want to do to close our time together today is I want to do what Paul's doing with, with Timothy for all of us, especially as we look out towards beyond risen hope and beyond 2021 and all the uncertainties that may seem to be orbiting that time frame ahead of us. I mean, I, I assure you, it is only uncertain to us. It is not uncertain at all to the God who governs all things, whatever that might look like. So I want to take all of us, myself included, to the glories of Romans 8. And I want to look at them with you. I want to embrace them with you. And I want to admonish all of us to simply remember Jesus. Remember him. For those among us who may have heard everything I said today and may be like, you know, I don't know that I believe anything that you just said. I don't know that I believe that any of this about Jesus is true. Or you might say, it certainly hasn't gripped me. Whatever this is that you see here, like it's gripped you, if that's you, I want you to know that my prayer, whether someone on the camera or whatever, someone on the, watching the video or, or any of us, my prayer for you today is that you would hear this promise in Romans 8 and that something about it, its truthfulness, its realness, its glory would cause you to want to turn to it and embrace it as your own. That's my prayer for you today that you would trust in Jesus, that your heart would move from a place of, I'm bored of that, I, I don't want that, to I don't know that I could live another moment without it. But if you are a believer, I know that you're just in the same place of need of hearing the gospel rehearsed to you, just like Timothy. He knew the gospel, but Paul said, I'm gonna write this letter for you so you know the gospel. I want you to know it, know it, know it, if you're a believer, no matter how weak or faltering your faith might feel right now, I'm, I'm just telling you right now, I want you to see this promise and know that the faithfulness that Paul talks about in verse 13 is real. It's real and it matters to you. Did it just go out? Okay. <laughs> it matters. Um, no matter what you feel like right now, no matter how weak you might feel in your faith and in your pursuit of God, it matters. His commitment to himself, listen to me, is, is his commitment to you because you belong to him. If you belong to God in this way, he is for you. He has bound himself to you in such a way through the cross of Christ and made it crystal clear that he is ready to do whatever it takes to bring us home. He's given his own son and therefore nothing could separate us from his love. Romans 8, 31 is where I'm gonna start. 
halfway in that verse, hear this from God to you. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn us. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who is raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for each of us right now, this moment. Who shall bring any charge or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress or persecution or, or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, or even our little church being scattered like seed at the end of this year. Is that going to separate us from the love of Christ? Is that going to be just the, 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 the straw that breaks the camel's back? And then that's it? Paul's response to this question is no. No. In all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from him because God's faithfulness to himself has become his faithfulness to us. So Risen Hope, if you belong to Christ, if you do trust him right now, this verse is true about you. This passage was written so that you would hear it and know he's talking about me. You belong to him and you are eternally safe in the arms of the one who gave himself up for you to be saved. Therefore, there is nothing that can separate you from his love. God has seen to it on the cross to eliminate every single barrier and obstacle between you and him being together forever. No matter what that barrier might be in your mind. So I ask you to remember Jesus. Risen from the dead the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Trust him, believe his promises, believe his warnings and banish in your heart every day when you wake up, when you go to sleep in your heart, banish anything in you that would deny him. Cast it off because if we die with him, we will live with him. If we endure, it is a certainty that we will reign with him. This is his promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is truth and we can bank our lives on it.
We can bank our eternity on it. But we are frail creatures and we are so prone to wander, so prone to to allow the cares of this life in this world to crowd in around our souls and to weigh us down when we could be witnessing to people in our own lives right now. We could be telling them about the glories of Christ. Father, I pray that the reality of verse 13, your faithfulness to those that you've called to yourself will be manifested in our lives every day. That we would recognize that there are no coincidences. That we have a sovereign God who reigns over everything. And that you have seen to it to make us your children at the cost of your son. How will you not also give us with him all things, including the pathway we need to get home to you and the strength we need to walk it. We plead with you for this, Father God, and we ask that the the truths that are in this book do not stay outside of us, but come and find dwelling in the deepest parts of our hearts, Father. We plead with you for that, for the sake of your name and your son. In the name of Jesus, amen.